0: I'm Earl McInerney, and I welcome you to the International Catholic University, and more particularly to a course in metaphysics. My colleagues and I, who are the participants and faculty of this electronic university, set about doing this because we wanted to make available in the most practical and inexpensive and widespread way the major elements of the Catholic patrimony, the great spiritual and intellectual heritage, which is ours as members of the Catholic faith. And in doing this, we have brought together any number of very distinguished people from various universities around the country. And furthermore, we have set up various tracks whereby one, by taking a series of courses, can earn sufficient credits to be awarded a master's degree either in philosophy or in theology. And the course we're starting on today, metaphysics, is a systematic course in our sequence leading to a master's in philosophy. Not that you have to be aiming at that in order to profit from these, uh, from these talks, but it does have that further uh, orientation for those who are so inclined. Metaphysics. I would, I suppose, be wise to tell you to rid your mind of all meanings and associations that that term might have for you, particularly if you're acquainted with certain used bookstores, you'll find a section on metaphysics and spiritualism usually, and you'll find books on phrenology and various other exact sciences. This is not very helpful to understand what we're going to be doing in these meetings. No more, I suppose, would it be helpful to think of the so-called metaphysical poets and the uh, round earth's imagined corners and so forth. What we are going to be keying on is a work of Aristotle's called the metaphysics, the source out of which this enterprise came in Western culture. The book of Aristotle, which is called the metaphysics, was not so-called by him, was not entitled The Metaphysics by Aristotle. And there is a story, which may have some foundation in fact, that it received this name because the scrolls containing the 14 books of The Metaphysics were placed after the scrolls that contained his teaching on natural things, ta-fuzika, so that the scrolls placed after them were called the metataphysica scroll, the metaphysical scroll. It's amusing, perhaps, that this word, this very polysyllabic and formidable word, had this origin in a cataloging arrangement. Whatever the truth of that, it is also true that it signifies that which is beyond the physical, that which is beyond the temporal. John Paul too, in his encyclical Fides at Ratio, in talking about the relationship between philosophy and the faith, urges philosophers to regain a sapiential dimension and, as he puts it in paragraph 83 of that encyclical, to get back a metaphysical range in what they are doing. He says, Here I do not mean to speak of metaphysics in the sense of a specific school or a particular historical current of thought. I want only to state that reality and truth do transcend the factual and empirical and to vindicate the human being's capacity to know this transcendent and metaphysical dimension in a way that is true and certain. The notion that the metaphysical takes us beyond the things of this world is an abiding implication of the term. And when the Holy Father speaks of its sapiential dimension, he's reminding us, as he does earlier in that encyclical, fides et ratio, faith and reason, that both Religion, Christianity, and philosophy address themselves to huge ranging questions. What does it all mean? What is the point of human life? Is there life after death? What should I do? And so on. These questions, which are inescapable for any human being, and which are, of course, addressed and answered by Christianity, were raised by the pagan philosophers. And they continue to be raised by us believers and non-believers because it's just part of what it is to be a human being to ask those questions in a philosophical fashion. That is, what answers could we give to them if we didn't have the answers of faith and given two sets of answers, how do they relate to one another and so forth. Anyway, we are setting out now to talk about the metaphysics of Aristotle. It is a book, a work, which is divided into 14 books, long chapters, I suppose we would say. The Greek text makes a small book of this size. This is one of those books that professional philosophers all but commit to memory. There are certain philosophers that every philosopher has to know in peril of being called illiterate in his field. And Aristotle is one of them, and certain works of Aristotle loom larger than others. The metaphysics of Aristotle is certainly one of those works. It begins with a sentence which is quoted by the Holy Father in that encyclical that I've mentioned. All men by nature desire to know. All men by nature desire to know. This is the motto, we might say, this is the headline under which the metaphysics is written. Now, you and I may know people to whom we think that generality doesn't apply. Some of our relatives might not seem to us driven towards the pursuit of knowledge. So we read on, and Aristotle immediately cashes in that claim in a way that makes it self-evident. He says, a sign that all men by nature desire to know is the delight we take in our senses. For even apart from their usefulness, they are love for themselves, and above all others, the sense of sight. The pursuit of knowledge, the desire for knowledge, is exemplified first of all in our senses, the five senses, listening, hearing, tasting, and so forth. How could one be a human being without pursuing the quest that is involved in those capacities? What Aristotle will now do, and I'm thinking now of the opening three books of the Metaphysics, I want just to bring those to your attention because they give us a sense of at once the panorama of philosophy and metaphysics as the culminating inquiry. So we're embarking here on the ultimate and culminating inquiry of philosophical research in metaphysics. The term philosophy, as we know, means love of wisdom. And the quest for wisdom, the trek, the kind of phenomenological panorama through which we go, moving from our senses through our internal senses and so forth, on to knowledge of the divine, in which, as Aristotle will argue, wisdom consists, this is the itinerary, this is the trajectory of philosophy. And if Aristotle is right, it's simply a portrait of what it is to be a human being. We as human beings are made to seek knowledge and truth about the world in which we live. The panorama that we find here at the opening of the metaphysics then proceeds in this way. Aristotle says, all men by nature desire to know a sign of this is the delight that we take in our senses, particularly the sense of sight, which makes many differences among things apparent to us. And then he talks about memory. There are some animals that have not only external senses, but they have memory as well. And memory is the basis of teachability. Memory is also the basis for what Aristotle calls experience. That is the kind of know-how that individuals can have in a particular area. They're able to accomplish a particular task. They have the experience, but they may not have the art or the knowledge in this sense that if you ask, why are you doing it that way, they wouldn't be able to give us an abstract explanation of it, although they would be able to perform the task and to perform it well. But they have, let us say, the know-how, but not the know-why. And Aristotle suggests that we tend to rank higher someone who is able to explain and teach and not simply to do and to show. Once he has that, Aristotle is able to remind us or draw our attention to something we already would have known, that we think we know something when we know the why of it, when we know the cause of it. And this now opens up the ascent towards the culminating task of philosophy. If knowledge is knowledge of causes, if all knowledge is knowledge of causes, that knowledge which knows or pursues the ultimate causes of all things will be wisdom it will be wisdom, and that's what philosophy is aiming at. But we can see that the term philosophy is not now signifying some particular discipline. It is simply a name for a whole set of inquiries and disciplines which are necessary for or useful for the attainment of wisdom, which is knowledge of things in their ultimate and highest cause. And as Aristotle will argue, If we had to use another name for the ultimate cause of things, we would use the name God. So that the culminating quest of philosophy, the wisdom, which is the aim of philosophical inquiry, is theology. And that is indeed one of the names that Aristotle gives to the inquiry that spreads out over these 14 books of what we call the metaphysics, theology. He also calls it first philosophy, meaning that it is not the first thing that we know. It doesn't come chronologically first, but it is first in rank. It's what ultimately we want to know. So metaphysics, as we tie it down to this work of Aristotle, and as we look at his introductory presentation of it in these opening chapters of Book 1 of the Metaphysics, moves off from where everybody already is. This is very typical of Aristotle. It's one of the reasons why Thomas Aquinas was so attracted to him. He begins with what everybody already knows and tries to build on that to lead us in a pedagogical fashion from what we know to what might not have been as obvious to us and then to new claims that are linked to what we know until finally we see this opening up of a quest, of an aim, of a telos, as Aristotle would say, a goal, which attracts us and that we see was already latent in the delight that we take in our senses. It's just our delight in wanting to look and to take in the world. This is an initial sign of the fact that, as Aristotle puts it, all men by nature desire to know. These opening chapters of the metaphysics are what we could call, if we were speaking Greek, a protreptic discourse. It was thought of many of the Platonic dialogues that they were written as kind of recruiting items for those who were outside the academy and who, in reading them, would be interested, their appetite for knowledge would be whetted, and they would want to enter the academy. So, too, I think we can see these opening chapters of the metaphysics of Aristotle as an effort to whip up our desire to show us how human beings can, in this stepwise way, move from external senses, internal senses, memory, experience, know-how, know-why, through the various kinds of explanation of physical objects, of mathematical entities and so forth, ultimately then to knowledge of the causes of all things. And this ultimately will be knowledge of the divine. What uh, Aristotle goes on to argue then is that wisdom is a theology. Wisdom is knowledge of the divine. I mentioned that this is one of the words, one of the titles that he actually uses for the inquiry that we find in the Metaphysics. We are spending this kind of time on Aristotle again. Why? Because this is the foundational work in this discipline called metaphysics. This is the first work in the field, so to speak. We might say that Plato was a metaphysician as well, and one could argue that. But if we wanted to think of the term and what it refers to, this work of Aristotle would come for it and also because in the International Catholic University and the philosophy courses that we give here, we are drawing attention always to the thought of Thomas Aquinas. It's well to notice that he was very much influenced by Aristotle. He is by way of being an Aristotelian, an Aristotelian plus, of course. But with respect to this particular work, as with 11 others of Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas wrote a very close, tight commentary. And this is the English translation of Thomas's commentary on the metaphysics of Aristotle. A rather sizable volume, this one published by an outfit known as Dumox Books, which you may have heard of. It's a reprint of an edition that had gone out of print, and Dumox Books has been bringing back these commentaries because students were finding it very difficult to locate at any reasonable price copies of the previous out-of-print edition, having to go to rare book dealers and so forth. But I draw your attention to this. Thomas took the metaphysics that seriously. His commentaries on the writings of Aristotle, by and large, follow the same method as that he used in commenting on Scripture. That is, you will have the text and then a word-by-word, line-by-line explication of the text. There were reasons of a controversial kind why, at the time he did this, Thomas Aquinas devoted the time that he did to producing these 12 commentaries on works of Aristotle. He did this towards the end of his life, but of course he'd been reading Aristotle from the very beginning. So when we're talking about Aristotle, it's not simply that we're referring to something that went on in ancient philosophy, though indeed it did. When we refer to Thomas, we're not simply referring to something that went on in the 13th century, although indeed it did. We want not simply a kind of historical knowledge accuracy as to what Aristotle taught, what Thomas thought he taught, but we were looking for the truth of the matter. And we're asking ourselves as we proceed through these lectures, Not only what did they mean by metaphysics, but what does it mean? What seems to be the truth of the matter? But how better arrive at that than guided by such giants as Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas? If wisdom is knowledge of the causes, Aristotle asks, what causes is it knowledge of? There are causes and causes. And he suggests that one way in which we might approach this is by looking just at the way we talk about a wise person. What do we mean when we say of someone that he is wise? And Aristotle suggests a number of things that we probably would have in mind. We would say, well, someone who is wise knows lots of things, in principle maybe, or it would seem all things. Though perhaps not in detail, but his knowledge is ranging, it's comprehensive, and he knows things that are difficult. Difficult, well, what's easy? Well, sense perception is easy. So the difficult knowledge that a wise man has is not simply being able to point out what's before our senses, but something beyond that. He's one whose knowledge is more exact in the sense that he's capable of teaching the causes. He can explain to us why things happen, the wise person, the person we account wise. And what he knows, Aristotle says, we're likely to account someone wise whose knowledge is of something desirable in itself. It's not just instrumentally important. Because if it is, that for which it is an instrument would be more important than the knowledge. But if the knowledge is sought for its own sake, obviously it's going to be ranked higher than merely instrumental knowledge. And then in a phrase that Thomas uses again and again, it is the role or task of the wise man to order Not to be ordered. So the wise person is one who knows the proper relationship among things. He knows what takes priority and what does not, and so forth. All of these traits, we could probably match them in our own terms and add to them. But Aristotle lists these as kind of signs of what we would mean by calling someone a wise man. And he's going to use this now to ask, well, then. How could we come up with a definition of wisdom out of these traits of the wise man? Knowing all things, that's one of the traits. This is something that would be true insofar as one knows what is universal, what is comprehensive, what is all-ranging, ranges over all things. And universals of that kind Aristotle says, they are the hardest to know. Furthermore, such knowledge is going to be knowledge sought for its own sake, if any kind of knowledge is. First principles, most universal, for its own sake, and it is a knowledge which is the end that, for the sake of which, most other knowledge is pursued. So out of this, he gets the traits of wisdom. It's not going to be a productive science. It's not going to be an instrumental science. It will be Theoria, in the sense of contemplative, something that we want for its own sake, it will be universal, it will deal with first principles, and it will be knowledge, again, sought for its own sake, and therefore end-like. For it is owing, Aristotle says, to their wonder that men both now began and at first began to philosophize. They wondered originally at the obvious difficulties, then advanced little by little. And indeed, when we look at the account of the history of philosophy beginning in the 6th century B.C., Aristotle, of course, is living in the 4th century B.C., Aristotle gives us some account of his predecessors, and the things that interested them were things like the eclipse, the solar and the lunar eclipse. What's going on when such phenomena occur? And we find the earliest philosophers producing explanations of these phenomena, the why of these phenomena. Answers we probably would find fanciful and be even amusing, but they are a sign of an effort to not only wonder and be in awe of a certain phenomenon, but to try to explain what is happening. The wonder, then, that is excited in us by an event of that kind can only be assuaged by knowing, well, why is it happening? What is the cause? This pursuit of Causes it goes beyond merely the explanation of eclipses and why dogs run kitty-corner and all the other problems that Aristotle lists as things we would want to be able to give explanations of. But finally, the question, the wonder, aims at the most total explanation of all. And this is how Aristotle links up this wonder, the pursuit of causes, and the depiction of wisdom off the traits of the wise man, why he links it up with the divine science. And he does it in an interesting way. He does it in two fashion. He says, what we're talking about here, what we're talking about wisdom, it sounds like something more than a human being could be expected to have. It sounds like the kind of knowledge that God would have. So he says, for the science which it would be most meet, for God to have is a divine science, and so is any science that deals with divine objects. And this science, the one that he is describing, has both these qualities. In other words, he's talking about a divine science in two senses. In one sense, it's the kind of knowledge we would expect God to have. God would have comprehensive knowledge of everything that is. A divine science, such as human beings might pursue, that the wisdom, that is the term of philosophy, would have the divine as its object. The subject, obviously, the knowing subject would not be divine, it would be a human being, but what it aims at, what it seeks to comprehend, what is its object, is the divine. In that sense, it is a divine science, and wisdom is characterized then by Aristotle as a divine science, as a theology. This pays off on the notion that philosophy is aiming at a wisdom, and wisdom addresses, as John Paul II suggested when he gave the sapiential character of philosophy, mentioned the metaphysical range that it ought to have. It is addressing the most deep-seated questions that we have. Metaphysics, the term might seem esoteric, the study of things which aren't physical, which are beyond the physical, and so forth. This is pursued in response to the drive that we are, the question that a human being is as to what the point of everything is, what the purpose of life is, what the aim of life is, and so forth. So we never want to lose sight of the connection between, as we might call it, this existential drive, this need that we have to answer those big questions. The need that very often comes to us in adversity, as it did to Job, When things go against us and so forth, when we're the victims of bad luck or misfortune, we tend to wonder, what's going on? What's the point of things? What's the meaning of life if such awful things can happen to such nice people as ourselves? We never, of course, ask why good things happen to such awful people as ourselves. But questions like that will come in on us in a very trying way. And they open up this kind of question that every human being, sometimes under stress, sometimes not, is bound to ask, what does it mean? What is the point of life? We never want to divorce this metaphysical concern and the issues, very abstract as they're going to look, that we're going to be pursuing from that deep-seated existential felt need that we have for an explanation. In looking at the panorama of these opening chapters of the metaphysics, and in saying it's moving towards wisdom, and we're talking about the movement through the internal senses, and then arts and sciences and so forth, we're moving right along, as we might say, and it's meant to function in that way, to build up to the culminating aim of philosophy, which is divine science, such knowledge as human beings can achieve of the divine. That's the point of philosophy for the Greeks, for Plato and for Aristotle. This is what fascinates the Christian believer in philosophers. What have they managed to discern? What have they managed to say about the divine on the basis of simply human experience? Believers will think of the epistle to the Romans, where St. Paul, after he's enumerated all of the misbehavior of the Roman, will say that they were inexcusable. And why? Because, he says, from the things that are made, they can come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. He's speaking of the pagan Roman, so he is saying they are inexcusable, their behavior is inexcusable because they could know and they should know that there is a God on the basis of natural human knowledge experience of the world. And knowing that there is a God has obvious moral ramification. So believers have this text of Paul and others which suggests that human beings do have this capacity. And then the question will always arise, what is the relationship between that kind of knowledge of the divine, very painstakingly arrived at, and as Aristotle's panorama suggests, only after one has achieved a great many other things will one be in a position to launch into metaphysics as such. It's the culminating, it is the last effort of philosophy. That's one of the reasons that Thomas will give for the fittingness of revelation. If you and I had to wait around until we were accomplished metaphysicians before we could have certain knowledge of God, our lives would be lived under a cloud rather than in the certainty that there is a God to whom we are responsible. So the claim that human beings can, in principle, know that there is a God is not in any way a claim that it's easy for them and that it comes at the drop of a hat. The commentary of Thomas that I mentioned in this selected reading of Thomas Aquinas that I prepared for Penguin Books, you'll find in Selection 28 on page 719 a translation of the proemium, the preface that Thomas wrote to the metaphysics of Aristotle. It's the opening of his commentary. And in it, he mentions the various names that Aristotle has given to this science or that has been given to it and suggests we shouldn't think that these are different sciences. These are all names of a single science, divine science, theology, first philosophy, and, of course, metaphysics, which Aristotle didn't call it. Now, if we just ask about Aristotle, what is the scope and range of philosophy? Give me a schematic notion of what philosophy includes on the assumption, again, that philosophy isn't the name of some particular science. Rather, it's an umbrella term which covers all intellectual inquiry insofar as the various disciplines are looked upon as aimed at divine science, theology, metaphysics. So it's that term, that end, that goal, which is the basis on which we include the various other disciplines or the various disciplines within the umbrella term or under the umbrella term of philosophy. What are these other sciences? Sometimes Aristotle will give us this very schematic view. He will say, look, knowledge is either theoretical or practical. And we've seen that latent in this opening passage. The delight that we take in the sense of sight, even when we have nothing further in mind than looking, we take delight in it. This is already an adumbration of the distinction between seeking knowledge for its own sake, or seeking knowledge for the sake of something beyond the knowledge. And we saw how Aristotle says, we value more highly knowledge which is sought for its own sake. So knowledge is distinguished into theoretical knowledge, practical knowledge. There are sciences that deal with the theoretical and the practical. So the first division that we might draw out of passages of Aristotle would be this, philosophy, a kind of generic term, it's subdivided, first of all, into theoretical disciplines, practical discipline. If we look at the practical disciplines, is there just one? No, there are several. As a matter of fact, there are three major practical sciences, philosophical, practical sciences in Aristotle, moral philosophy in short, ethics, economics, and politics. These are philosophical reflections which are meant to guide action. They're not sought simply for their own sake. If we study ethics, we do so with an eye to living better. If we study economics, that is, the common good that is shared by many members of the same domestic community, oikia is the Greek term for house, for home, we do this with an eye to better behavior within the domestic community. And political science is, of course, aimed at the more effective and just pursuit of the good common to members of a polity, of a city. So philosophy, practical philosophy, three sub-sciences. We have a work of Aristotle's, we have several, but the main one dealing with ethics is, of course, the Nicomachean ethic. We have no work of his on economics as such, but of course we have as well his work, the politics. So with these divisions, of course, we can usually line them up with some particular text or title of Aristotle. The other main division of philosophy looked at schematically is theoretical philosophy. And if we ask ourselves, what does Aristotle include in that, we would have, first of all, natural science, natural philosophy. And the works covering this make up the bulk of Aristotle's writing. The work that I mentioned as that from which the metaphysics was denominated, perhaps, in the allocation of the scrolls, the ta Physica, the physics of Aristotle, is the first work of his devoted to the natural world, and from it he goes on and on and on. As I say, most of his writings are concerned with the natural world and indeed with the life world. There's also mathematics. That's another theoretical science. And then, ultimately, there is metaphysics. So if we just looked at it schematically, if we asked Aristotle, so what do you mean by philosophy as an umbrella term? What does it cover? That would be one way of expressing an answer to it. Philosophy, theoretical or practical, each of those subdivided into a number of sciences. What that loses, of course, is the sense of progression from one to the other that we find in the opening chapters of the metaphysics. So there are other places in Aristotle that suggest the pedagogical order according to which we should pursue these various sciences. Because of course, if we just see them schematically laid out in the way that I mentioned, we might think, well, you could pick this one or that one, doesn't much matter where you began and so forth. That was not Aristotle's view. There is another theory that we don't find it's laid out as such, but the elements of it are present in Aristotle, and commentators like Thomas put these elements together and then speak to us of Aristotle's order of learning, the order of learning the sciences that Aristotle proposed. And that would go something, this is more genetic, this is more pedagogical. First of all, one ought to learn logic. Aristotle was the father of logic. You notice that didn't show up in the schematic division of philosophy that I gave a moment ago. But the first thing that we should pursue is logic, that is the method of the sciences. If you want to achieve a science, you ought to know what it is you're looking for, so you'll know when you have found it. Reasons like that Aristotle gives for the priority or the primacy of logic. The next discipline Aristotle suggests that we can take up would be mathematics. And let me just give you the panorama, and then we'll talk about it. First of all, logic, then mathematics, then natural science, then moral science, and ultimately metaphysics. And that captures better the sense of a straining and aiming a pursuit of metaphysics as the ultimate thing, and these other things as stages on the way to the acquisition of that kind of wisdom. In the great pedagogical educational tradition of the Middle Ages up to the rise of the universities in 13th century, the year 1200, the dominant mode of education in the monastic schools and then in the cathedral schools was the liberal arts. And when you think of the seven liberal arts and their division into two main groups, the trivium on the one hand and the quadrivium on the other, you see what you're being reminded of here is this order of learning. The trivial, the arts of the trivium, the arts of language are grammar, rhetoric, and logic. So this would answer to that first moment, pedagogical moment, in Aristotle's conception of the order of learning. The arts of the quadrivium are arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. These are mathematical arts. So that the liberal arts tradition that dominated the medieval education from the Dark Ages on, from the founding of monasteries up through the founding of universities, is, so to speak, a piece of that order of learning, or the first two moments of that order of learning that Thomas pieced out of Aristotle. But in that intervening period, as you may know, this work of Aristotle's, the metaphysics, was not available to people in the West. It hadn't been translated into Latin, so of course it couldn't be read. Most of the writings of Aristotle had not been made available. One of the dramatic features of the rise of universities is the sudden availability in Latin translation with Arabic commentators of the writings of Aristotle. So it's as if the metaphysics When it comes back into circulation, we have the possibility of restoring it to this order of learning and relating it to the liberal arts, which tradition had been standing in for philosophy during this long period of time. Those three ways and four ways, the trivium and the quadrivium, names of the seven liberal arts, are ways to what? They're ways to wisdom. And where is wisdom to be found in holy scripture? So that medieval education was secular learning, the seven liberal arts, was a propriedutic. It was a preparation for a better reading, a deeper reading, a more profitable reading of the Bible. This relationship between faith and reason, which is the title of John Paul II's recent encyclical, Fides et Ratio, that is the theme of medieval education. And it alters in a dramatic way in the 13th century when... You have a theology of the philosophers, which has to be related now to the theology that is based upon sacred scripture. Up to this point, it's that problem in those terms simply did not exist. But now suddenly you had a vast work that is aimed at such knowledge as human beings can achieve of God, of the divine. And the question had to arise, how does that relate? to what God has revealed to us in Scripture in Revelation. So this introduction to metaphysics that we're launching on now is going to be via the metaphysics of Aristotle. We have seen how the opening chapters of it give us a kind of panorama of philosophy. We've said some things about other divisions of philosophy and how they relate to what is called the order of learning, the proper order of learning the philosophical sciences, according to which metaphysics would come late, And then we wanted to mention that this is a novelty at the time of Thomas Aquinas to have at hand, to have in one's own hand, a work which was a pagan philosophical work that purported to say what human beings could know of the divine independently of divine revelation. A great challenge and a great and exciting kind of possibility for the thinkers of the 13th century. And it made for a very lively scene in the first century of universities. This work of Aristotle, which we are going to concentrate on for itself and through the eyes of Thomas, not merely historically, as I've mentioned, but we want to arrive at the truth of the matter, this work of Aristotle's has been subject in our own century to a very extraordinary kind of treatment from antiquity, from Hellenistic times, through the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, up until 1912. People who read the metaphysics of Aristotle did so on the assumption that they were reading a unified work. They sat down and they began at the beginning and went through to the end and tried to explain it. Commentators through all those different traditions, the Neoplatonic commentators, the medieval commentators, Thomas was one of them, the Renaissance commentators, they assumed that they were dealing here with a unity. So in the manner of commentators, they would draw attention to the order of the various books, why the early books came before the later books, for example, why the chapters in a particular book were arranged in the way in which they were. And if you were to look at the great tradition of commentary on the metaphysics of Aristotle, whatever variations you would find, of course there would be many and important, this would not be at issue, that is, whether or not we're dealing here with a work, a single work, something to be explained as a whole. Now, in 1912, a German scholar, Werner Jaeger, published a book on the development of the metaphysics of Aristotle. And in it, he proposed a hypothesis that was deeply unsettling, devastating, you might say, to Aristotelian research, at least to all previous Aristotelian research, because if Jaeger's hypothesis is correct, That long tradition of commenting and explaining the metaphysics as a unit, as a whole, is absolutely insane. To find order where there is none would be an example or a definition, I suppose, of insanity. For Werner Jaeger, the metaphysics of Aristotle is a pastiche. It is a hodgepodge. It is not a unit at all. It represents all kinds of different chronological layers. It's at war with itself. The best that Jaeger could say about the metaphysics of Aristotle is that it has two quite distinct conceptions of what it's doing, and Aristotle was never able to relate these two conceptions to one another. Now, since he is arriving at this hypothesis on a chronological basis, he makes much of the fact that Aristotle spent nearly 20 years in the Platonic Academy and didn't leave until Plato died, and Speusippus, the nephew of Plato, was elected head of the Academy, whereupon Aristotle left and founded the Lyceum. He was a Platonist. He was a Platonist. The dialogues of Aristotle that have been reconstructed by scholars since the middle of the 19th century present us with an outlook which is very close to the outlook of the dialogues of Plato. It doesn't strike us as the Aristotle who is critical of Plato, as he is so often in the so-called treatises, such as the physics, the metaphysics, the work on the soul, and so forth. Now, what Jaeger professed to find was this. In the metaphysics, as it's come down to us, there are passages which are written clearly from a Platonic point of view. And he surmises, guesses, that these were written while Aristotle was a member of the Platonic Academy. There are other passages which clearly date much later, and here he's taking up a very polemical attitude towards the Platonic position. So it's as if you had an early... Platonizing Aristotle, and then you have a later Aristotelian Aristotle, and that is the tension, the fundamental tension that Werner Jaeger sees within the work. But he sees it not simply as locatable in, say, some books are representative of the early outlook and other books of the late. These two outlooks are mingled and commingled and jumbled up in each of the books, or in most of the books, and indeed sometimes in a particular chapter. Now, this philological, genetic, evolutionary approach to the metaphysics of Aristotle was generalized by Werner Jaeger in a later book, some ten years later, Aristotle, the history of the fundamentals of his development. He ranges over the whole body of Aristotle's works and suggests this. We have to rethink them in terms of their having been produced over time, put together, perhaps not by Aristotle. Maybe Aristotle didn't put together these 14 books of the metaphysics. Maybe it was Andronicus of Rhodes in the first century and so forth. Maybe, maybe. So he introduces this hypothesis, and it started an industry. You can go to any major research library, go to the Aristotle section, go to the metaphysics section, particularly of Aristotle, and the shells will groan under the weight of works which were written to alter, to replace, to compete with, the position of Yeager, but which all are based on this notion that we're not confronting here a single effort, a literary effort on the part of Aristotle, certainly not in the metaphysics, but as I say, a jumble. This dominated Aristotelian studies for most of this century. And of course, it kind of takes the zest out of one if he wants to pick up the metaphysics of Aristotle and read it. And he's told, well that's not a single book. It's just a jumble. It's as if you had shredded your papers and somebody had pasted them all together in whatever order and then published it as your diary. It would be hardly worth reading because it wouldn't be yours. So in this kind of approach of Jaeger there wasn't much of an incentive to read the works of Aristotle. And of course there was a terribly negative consequence towards all previous interpretations of Aristotle that had assumed that this was a unified book, among them Thomas Aquinas. If you should look at this commentary of Thomas on the metaphysics, you would find that he is constantly, in each lesson, each division of his commentary, he is stressing the order of the discussion, and not just in general, but in deep detail. Now, of two things, one, either Thomas Aquinas is mad or Jaeger is wrong. Now well, fortunately, Jaeger is wrong. Jaeger's notion that there are two conflicting, warring conceptions of the metaphysics in the metaphysics of Aristotle cannot be sustained on simply Aristotelian ground. The two warring conceptions are, again, the Platonic and the Aristotelian, or we can also put it in these terms, the metaphysics as ontology on the one hand, and metaphysics as theology on the other. And which is it? Is it a science of everything? That would be an ontology of everything that is. Or is it a science of a particular kind of being, divine being? It can't be both, Jaeger says. Aristotle could never make up his mind which of these he wanted it to be. So what we have here is a hodgepodge. The only ones, then, on that basis who would be willing to read the metaphysics would be those who are philologists and who like to dig around in texts and say things about the text independently of what they might be as vehicles of truth or falsity. Now, as I say, this dichotomy, these two possible interpretations of the metaphysics that express Jaeger's view that it is at war with itself, there is no possibility in aristotle that there could be a science of theology of the kind that jaeger is talking of that is that god could form the subject matter of a science we'll be returning to these things but Believe me, it is not possible on the basis of Chapter 17 of Book 7 of the Metaphysics of Aristotle. It's just simply impossible, as well as the posterior analytics of Aristotle, for there to be a science, the subject of which would be a simple reality, such as God is. So theology, as Jaeger understands it as competitive with ontology, is a non-starter in Aristotle. Now, what happened to this Jaeger hypothesis? Well, people got tired of it. They got tired of it. And a point was reached where people said, look, we don't want to be reading all of these endless discussions as to the non-unity of Aristotle. Let's just read them again, the way people used to. And that's how people, philosophers at least, got over this. D.J. Allen was one, a number of other influential philosophers simply said, look, we're going to set all that aside. Maybe they have something, maybe they don't. We want to read Aristotle. Well, it's important, I think, to set that aside, not simply in terms of being tired of it, but to show that there is no plausibility in the fundamental position of Werner Jaeger. So we're restored to the notion of, well, then, if it has not been proved, certainly on that basis, that the metaphysics is just a hodgepodge, then we go back to it and ask, well, what does it mean? And then such commentary as Thomas Aquinas. Any of the great... Classical commentary neoplatonic uh, medieval Renaissance will be of interest to us again And we will be reading fellow readers of the text who are trying to understand it and so forth and it's Philosophically far more profitable, but as I say it's important to realize one isn't doing this simply because he doesn't like Philologists easy enough, but that their position is simply not plausible It's not plausible on the terms that they themselves would accept So the Jaeger hypothesis is not simply something to weary of, it's something to refute and to reject and to go back to a reading of the metaphysics of Aristotle then as a unified work. And that is how we're going to be approaching it in these lectures. But the problem that Jaeger puts forward, although it cannot be phrased in the way in which he does it, is going to be one of the central issues that we're going to have to confront. How is it possible to put together... The one description of this science that Aristotle gives that we will be looking at, the science of being as being, that is everything, and our desire to know what we can about God. If it's not the case, as Jaeger assumed, that you do the one or the other, how do you put the two together? And what we are going to be seeing is that for Aristotle, As for Thomas, in order for metaphysics to be a theology, it must be an ontology. So these are not options. These aren't warring conceptions. They are absolutely complementary, the one necessary to the other. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at CatholicThinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.